TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. HBR presents... Everyone, you're listening to a bonus episode of After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Me here, and I'm Felix. And it's good to see you on an off day, guys. <laughs> yeah, very good. I could get used to this. <laughs> so this bonus episode came out of a conversation the three of us had recently. We've all been talking, obviously, a lot about COVID nineteen, which is so important and everywhere. But we were just reflecting on how it's important to keep our eye on other things that are going on in the world. And we wanted to use an episode to kind of lift our eyes from the immediate crisis of COVID-19 to some of the larger issues that we're all facing. And one of the really big, important topics before coronavirus and after is, of course, climate change and how to think about climate change, what to do about climate change. And I was fortunate enough to sit down with one of our colleagues, Rebecca Henderson. One of our favorite colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. One of our favorite colleagues, (laughs) Rebecca Henderson. And she's written this very interesting book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. In part, it's so interesting because it thinks about the ways in which our current economic system is and isn't able to respond to these very big challenges, climate change being one of them, income distribution being another one of them. And it's really fascinating, both because it's so sweeping, but it's also interesting because she has very specific recommendations. And so I was dying to talk with her. And so I did. You know, interestingly, that book has come out of years of effort by Rebecca to think about these issues. And they were in part structured in a class that was extremely popular at HBS. And she's now turned it into this fantastic book. So without further ado, here is Felix's interview with Rebecca on her new book. Hi, everyone. I'm here with my colleague, Rebecca Henderson, to talk about your new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Great to have you, Rebecca. Felix, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you. So the beginning of the book, there's this wonderful story about you and the trees. Tell us about the meaning of trees. So 
for reasons I don't understand, trees have always been central to my life. I just think they're the most amazing beings. Um, I love the way they look. I love the way they smell. I love the way they move. So for me, there's almost nothing better than walking in a beech wood at the height of maturity or sitting underneath a tree and looking up at the sky through its branches. There's something about the quietness of a tree. There's something about the fact that they're always moving. They're always changing. Every day you go back to them, Uh they look different. There's something about the fact that they're millions of years old as a life form. And so many life forms, you can't really sit underneath and stare at them. They scamper (laughs) away, you know. But a tree just stands there. And I think part of it's being British because I grew up around enormous trees. And so I'm a literal tree hugger. You know, if I see a 300-year-old beech tree, the first thing I want to do is go up to it, stand underneath it, look up, put my arms around it. Yeah, yeah. They just feel to me like the most beautiful and amazing of things. Wonderful. And then, of course, that's part of the motivation to write the book, the sense that our relationship with our natural environment now is in a very precarious state. It's really interesting. You know, when I first finished my PhD and I started teaching at MIT, I didn't think about the natural world. I took it completely for granted. I was teaching innovation. You know, I'm British, so I focus on how firms can change. (laughs) That's what I do. And it just didn't occur to me. I always assumed that the natural world would be there. And I Hmm. think most of us have done that for most of our lives. And it wasn't really until about 15 years ago that I really started to become aware of how fragile the natural world is. At some level, it's very hard to believe that humans can really affect the natural world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been Mm -hmm. here for so long and we're so small. But my brother is an environmental journalist and he started sort of steadily feeding me some of the science around climate change. The more I learned, the more I worked with firms that were thinking about these issues, the more I became aware that there's really a significant risk Uh that we will lose large numbers of the trees. My sense is that this is sort of a journey that many of us have gone through in the last couple of years. We knew about climate change. We saw the predictions, but it seemed far away. It seemed maybe the next generation will worry about it. And now... I don't know if that's exactly right, but my sense is there's much more urgency. In part, I think, as a result of youth activism, I think that has played a really big role. Uh, But also in part because now the consequences of climate change are visible in so many ways that we couldn't really anticipate. I couldn't agree more. I mean, when I first started thinking about climate change maybe 15 years ago, I kind of assumed we would just fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fairly clear what the policy solution was. You know, I thought we would put in a price for carbon and gradually increase it. And, you know, that's such an elegant solution. And I, I knew that if we did that, the economy would innovate like crazy. Mm-hmm. And then I started to see trees dying. Yeah. And as you know, if you go out west, you're seeing more and more forests dying. And it's related to climate change in that they're facing pests that would never have Mm -hmm. survived the winter and never come that far north. But you're seeing enormous forests of lodgepole pine dying. And and I started to think like, I'm so embarrassed to say this because I've been studying (laughs) climate change for so long. But I think you're right. It was about like two years ago. I was like, Oh, my God, this is really happening. It is happening. really happening. It is yes. really happening. It is really happening. And then yeah. when you watch what's happening in Australia, yeah. 
or you see some of the flooding in the Midwest, or you yeah. see the fires in California, it, it's really like this, oh my God, it's really happening. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's yeah. real. And, yeah. and that realization, I'm so, you know, like I've been teaching courses on sustainability for years, and at some level I thought it's not real. Uh-huh. Yeah, and yeah. now I think there's a big change. I think there's a big shift happening. Yeah. And so the first surprise about the book, I think, is in the title, in that, it says what we have to do is reimagine capitalism, which is surprising in the sense that if you have a system that doesn't really perform, shouldn't you ditch it? <laughs> shouldn't you give it up? So, so what's the rationale that you said, no, I'm still the economist and I'm not giving up my deep belief and faith in the magical powers of capitalism. Oh, Felix, you remind me, I, I gave a talk on my book at my old high school, oh. <laughs> which is a very academic all-girls school in London. And I'm standing in front of, you know, 100 young women. And the first question I get is, why reimagine capitalism? Why not throw it yeah. out the window? Yes. <laughs> so, so you're not the only person to <laughs> ask me Excellent. this. Okay. So um, I actually feel very passionately about this. I think in many ways capitalism is our only hope of getting through the next 30, 40 years. Really? Yeah. Because capitalism is an innovation machine. If you give it the right incentives, it will give you what you want. You know, capitalism is fantastic if you want toothpaste or cars or roads or, you know, if there's a demand, capitalism will find a way to meet it. And the problem is, for so many reasons, we haven't told the system that what we want it to do is mm -hmm. fix climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so capitalism alone can't fix this problem. No way. There has to be a demand for fixing climate change. And if businesses can make money by addressing these problems, we're going to get much more innovation much faster than a kind of planned solution. Everything we know about central planning is it doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I'm very sympathetic to Naomi Klein. I really get emotionally where she is. She's like, the system is corrupt. Let's tear it down. Let's start over. This That's is massive. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I really I so resonate with that. But I don't think it will work. I don't want to give saving the world to a bunch of bureaucrats. What I want to do is give it to a bunch of entrepreneurial firms with the right incentives. But in a way, the crux of the issue is we have the most elegant solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. We issue permits. They're tradable. We issue fewer and fewer permits over time. And all the magic things that you talk about will happen. All the magic things and happen. And we've known this for a long time. We have compacts right. in the United States, California, Northeastern Compact. And they now, work beautifully. Now connections with Quebec. So we have, as you say, the innovative power. We have the means to do it. And somehow we still have to, like, what's the reimagining about? Oh. So here's what the reimagining is. The reimagining is imagining that just as we need free markets, we need free politics. That government is actually important and that honest, transparent government not controlled by money is the central idea. So it's funny. The book is called Reimagining Capitalism, but it should be called Reimagining the Balance Between Capitalism and Society or Capitalism and Government. Yeah. Because, you know, the reason we don't have the beautiful policy that would help us save climate change is because there are a number of firms who will lose a great deal of money yeah. if we put that policy into place. Yeah. And they have been spending money like crazy. Yeah. 
And they have been running down the idea that government has any role to play. And even now, when they've moved from, well, climate change isn't happening, to climate change, there's nothing we can do. Now we're, oh, just innovation will save us. (laughs) So the two central elements of reimagining capitalism. The first is that, yes, the bottom line is super important, but not if it destroys the natural world Mm -hmm. or the social world. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we need to do as business people is demand that we get the guardrails in place that make sure that when business acts and innovates, it does the right thing. And I have a vision in my head, which, you know, sometimes people look at me. When I was trying to sell my book, I went to a very prestigious publisher in New York. And he looked at me and he said, business saves the world, Rebecca. Um, Do you read the paper? (laughs) You know, like, what are you thinking? But I really have this vision that business says we need, you know, if we're going to get technical, we need tradable permits or we need a price for carbon. You need to give us a price signal and then the market will do what it needs to do. Of course, this isn't totally loony. This is starting to happen. So you are seeing coalitions of CEOs saying, this is crazy. I mean, what are we doing? What kind of risk are we putting ourselves at by not taking action and are getting very politically active and are thinking about campaign finance reform and democratic reform and lobbying for a carbon price? So yes, the reimagining capitalism is sort of broadening the mission of capitalism to yes, absolutely maximizing shareholder value, but in a way that gives us a livable world that we can mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. be happy to give to our children. Yeah, yeah. Maybe sometimes the social value is really the reason why you do things Sorry. at the expense. No, I don't want to Not go there. Not at the expense. I don't want to go there. I want to think about it in a different way. I mean, I sit on the board of you know a Fortune 200 company, so I'm super aware that, A, legally you can't say, I'm going to do something that destroys shareholder value. I mean, you, you just can't do that for all kinds of reasons that get you fired. It's probably not legal. The way I think about it is we need to think more broadly about what creates shareholder value. We need to think about longer timeframes. And we need to think about ways it is not acceptable to create shareholder value. So let me give you an example. No one would say in public, well, you know, I don't like employing children, but it's super profitable. I mean, you can maximize shareholder value by employing children. You can do that. But like, It's not okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's super important to change the sense of what's okay. So I imagine a world in which fairly soon it's not okay to emit greenhouse gases unless you absolutely have to and you're doing everything you can to bring it down, just as you wouldn't employ child labor. Mm -hmm, I -hmm. just came from teaching a case about a Norwegian waste firm that Mm, I talk about in the book. And it's not a question of making money or social value. It's a question of how do I innovate and take risks and rebuild the industry so I can do both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's my duty. Mm -hmm. It's not just maximize shareholder value, go home. It's like, how do we make money in a way that's okay? And for me, that's how we'll change things. So to push back a little bit, isn't this just a way to say, look, in the short run, my financial results are going to look worse. But there is some sort of accounting that will show you that because this, in the end, saves the planet, it's actually also good for shareholders. How much of a hit to financial results are okay (laughs) if you then make the argument, and look, in some bigger way, this is actually 
so helping. I would never recommend to an individual firm that they say in some bigger way we're helping the economic system. I mean, the board would look at them and say, "Yeah, right." What I'm saying is that you can look for new opportunities you might not otherwise look for. Yep. And we know that investors will give you more space. Mm-hmm. So if you say, "Look, my consumers are demanding that I change. Yep. I think there are new markets. I can cut my costs. I can improve my reputation. I need to make these investments." But believe me, three or four years from now, we're going to be really glad we did. That's just like selling any new opportunity. Yes. Now, the save the whole planet thing, there's a couple of ways into that. One is if you can get everyone in your industry or everyone in your region. So the food companies, for example, they're increasingly seeing that like Climate change is really a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. But like we're going to run out of water and we're losing the topsoil and deforestation has all kinds of negative effects and and our consumers hate it. So they're all getting together and they're saying, okay, let's all address this. The whole industry will be better off and we're not economically disadvantaged. So I'm not advocating for some like, oh, let's do it for the planet because you won't survive as a business person unless, to be fair. Unless you own like $1.6 trillion and you own the Japanese pension fund and you're the chief investment officer, then you can talk about the good of the planet because you have a 100-year time frame and you're responsible to all Mm -hmm, the pensioners mm -hmm. in Japan. And then you really do, I think, Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. a duty to focus on these large problems. But otherwise, no, I think the, oh, just do the right thing and the whole world will be better off. That's bad advice, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I know too many business people. It's just not going to work. Yeah. So in a way, reimagining capitalism is much less radical than I would have (laughs) expected. It sounds a little bit like, oh, yes, of course, if we have opportunities to, say, cut our transportation costs, probably we should have done this a long time ago. And by the way, it also contributes to less stress for the planet. Fantastic. Is the description that you give in the end, is it just sensible business? I feel like saying, I'm busted. (laughs) (laughs) You know, initially I was trying to get people to take my course. And I thought, you know, manage business more sensibly and think about the long term and be creative was not a great title for a course. Okay. Um, So reimagining capitalism. But uh, let me push back a tiny bit. Okay. Because there's a variant of today's capitalism where we've – sort of almost told business people that it's okay to do anything as long Mm -hmm. as you make money. That it's not your job to think about the health of your society. It's not your job to think about whether your employees are paid enough. It's not your job to think about whether your business model is destroying the planet. And we've given people, as it were, moral cover for doing stuff that's really not okay. And permission not to worry about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I do think I could have called this rediscovering old-fashioned capitalism. That would have been another title for the book. Yeah, yeah. Probably would sell fewer copies, (laughs) I'd imagine. (laughs) Rediscovering old-fashioned capitalism, (laughs) not a big seller. But if you think back to, you know, and it wasn't a totally golden age. There were all kinds of problems. But if you go back to the 50s and 60s and you'd taken your average business person off the street and said to him, 
you know, how would it be if you ran your company to make money at any costs and you ran down your community and you ran down your employees and you dumped stuff in the river and you tried to subvert the democratic mm-hmm. process? Because mm-hmm. if you can get the rules written in your own favor, like, whoa, that's a fabulous way yeah. to make money. Yeah, yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. They would have looked at you like you were crazy. Yeah. So that's what I think is the reimagining part, which is, no, no, capitalism is an integral part of a much broader system. And we need to think about ourselves as part of a much greater whole. Mm-hmm. And it is not okay to sit in your office and just try and make money at any cost without thinking about the consequences. Yeah, yeah. It's always been interesting to me that the mission of the school for a long time was make a decent profit decently. And then we went away from that. And so maybe this is an interesting opportunity to think back about what motivated that mission in the first place. Some issue that people saw even with capitalism way back then, but also how that was really at the core of an understanding what a successful business person was supposed to do. You know, I remember talking to a friend of mine who's a banker, very successful banker. And he said, you know, when I first became a banker, it was about the customers. It wasn't about squeezing every last penny. And of course, you have to make money. But that doesn't mean you have to take every opportunity that comes your way and not think about the broader consequences. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not okay. Yeah. One other consequence, of course, of capitalism, the way we've experienced it in the last couple of decades, is this incredible concentration of wealth. How do you think about that? So... I do think about that. I think about it a lot. Part of what's going on is if you're very, very good at what you do, you make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, the example I use is Oprah Winfrey, who I'm a huge fan of. And imagine Oprah Winfrey 100 years ago, you know, with all her talents and all her abilities. She would have done well, but she would not have made billions of dollars. And in a sense, the very best talent has been able to take advantage of all these assets we've created so they can make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a return to their energy and effort. That's why I use Oprah Winfrey. I mean, like, you know, she created a ton of value, more power to her. But in some fundamental way, these huge payoffs are a kind of also caused by the structure of modern society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it feels to me as if it's too much. And it's too much because, you know, if we don't think about it in the long term, we're going to distort the political process because money buys access, money buys power. And I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that we're creating a generation of kids who are going to just be born with this huge amount of money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Capitalism creates inequality. That's a feature, not a bug. People who work really hard and do the right thing, and I'm totally up for it. I'm just not sure you need billions of dollars to motivate yourself to do Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about the entrepreneurs in the 19th century, or even in places where there's high tax rates now, there's no evidence that entrepreneurship is less or people work less hard. In fact, rather the reverse. So for me, this is a problem. Looking, for instance, at the degree to which we redistribute income, you can say that actually we're sort of in an okay place. Yes, the market has created huge imbalances. Some people get richer than we ever imagined people would be. 
And then what we do, maybe not enough, but what we should do is just take that wealth and redistribute it. Eduardo Porter has a series of fabulous maps that he created for the United States. And it shows county by county. You can look at how much of an average person's income comes from transfers. If you look at that map in the 1970s, it's, it's basically empty. The average was about 10% for the U.S. as a whole, but it was in a few pockets where transfers from government really played a big role. You look at that map today, and not only is the average twice as much, about 20% of the average person's income comes from government transfer, you see dozens and dozens of counties where it's 40%, where it's 50%, where it's 60%. So what exactly is the issue? No, I'm We take s- it from the people who make it. No, I'm super uncomfortable it. with that. Super, super and uncomfortable. And why is that? Because there's another dynamic going on here, right? We talked about the fact that the very high returns at the sort of very skilled level are due to, like, they have this amazing energy and yes. effort and they and yep. they leverage it. But the other thing that's going on is that we've been systematically destroying the power of labor. And here's a really tricky piece of the argument, which, to be frank, I don't usually get to until like the second or third hour I've been talking to someone (laughs) about these questions because it makes business people so nervous. But when you look at the historical data, one of the things that drives labor income is a strong voice for labor. Because if I'm just me, and I'm negotiating with a few mega corporations, they've got a ton of power. And yes, if I'm very highly skilled and I can move easily, I'm going to be okay. But if I can't move easily and this is my life, it's going to be really hard to get wages up, particularly if I can threaten to move the plant to Vietnam and the people in Vietnam aren't paying Extraordinary wages. So I think when we think about reimagining capitalism, a huge piece of the puzzle is recreating jobs with dignity and respect that are decently paid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I think, maybe this sounds super old-fashioned, but I would much rather people have the choice and access to decent jobs with decent pay than send them checks. I, I don't, for all kinds of reasons. And the reason is there's dignity in there's labor. Dignity there's dignity in labor. There's so much. We know that most people get a huge portion of their life satisfaction from their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea, I mean, this is what makes me so uncomfortable about the minimum basic income. The idea that I won't have jobs, that somehow I'm just going to take a government handout, it makes me super uncomfortable mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons. Like there's tons of human needs that we're not meeting. I mean, it's not as if there's a shortage of work to be done. There's tons of work to be done. And I think we've fallen into the trap. Again, this goes to what's really a, needs to be reimagined, of thinking of people as interchangeable units that you push the price down as hard as you can. And that's not what people are. And I mean, a big issue I talk about in my book, I think is really important, is we have increasing evidence that in many cases, paying people a bit more, creating jobs that enable to use their initiative and their creativity and their innovation, and treating them as human beings, not just as things you're trying to minimize and pay minimum cost, is just like a much better way to run the Mm -hmm, railroad. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't come for free. You have to pay a lot of attention. You have to redesign work. Mm -hmm. I imagine a reimagined capitalism, just as we don't employ child labor, 
you know, most of the jobs we provide are decently paid and carefully structured. The evidence of local minimum wages. If you look at the data for Seattle, it seems that raising wages to $13 really made everyone better off. That was a fabulous move, should have probably happened a long time ago, and it was good for the firms, also because then they're thinking carefully about how to treat the people they have, and it was good for the workers. The subsequent increase led to cutbacks in hours. Right. And so now people are worse off. And so I think we need to use multiple tools. It's not like raise the minimum wage and we're done. And as you say, raise it too high and you get negative effects. I think there are many markets in which you could do what Seattle did and, yes, and do uh, well. The first step, I think, was But I think wonderful. there's a range of other things we could do. Let's talk about – it's easy to talk about education, but let's talk about retraining and mid-career education. Let's talk about greatly increasing the skill base. Let's talk about healthcare. Right. One of the reasons jobs feel so precarious and people are really experiencing so much stress in their lives is they're $400 away from bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, this is so squidgy. But let's talk about really committing to the workforce and being there for them and helping them with investing in them as people and investing in them as training. One of the problems now is firms that do that are often at a disadvantage from firms that are quick and dirty and turn over and run their schedules. You know, you can you shop for me at any time. You could imagine legislation that says, you know, no, you've got to give people a schedule in advance. So I think there are ways to increase the solidity and dignity and fun of work without bankrupting people. So I think there are many kind of elements of this. It's not just about the minimum wage, although I do think raising wages is key. Okay. And there are many places where that can be done. There's a line in the book towards the end of the book that uh, really touched me. You wrote, the roots of our current predicament are fear and separateness. <sighs> Oh, so sometimes I feel nervous saying this in public, but it's what I really believe, that we have become so obsessed with stuff and status. And stuff and status are walls against fear and walls against separateness. And at root, I really deeply believe we're not going to solve the problems we face unless we can reach out to each other and understand ourselves as part of something much more important. You know, I think most people feel that, but we've sort of created a society in which if I say stuff like that, I'm kind of wussy and not really a serious player. But it's fundamental. You know, I was reading a wonderful piece that said, we've designed our society as if what we want is toasters, but what we actually need are cats. <laughs> And we just like create more and more toasters. But no, what we want is to slow down and feel touched and feel warm. And so I do think there's a big part of social change here. And part of what I'm hoping for with reimagining capitalism is that more and more businesses will sort of start to work on that wavelength. And I think that would make a huge difference. We spend all our time at work. Let, let's stop pretending that we're all islands. We are not. 
Thank you, Rebecca. The book is Reimagining Capitalism in a World of Fire. This is it for tonight. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.